can just give uh, that worship team one last hand, please. I want to just invite uh, two up here uh, real quick um, just to acknowledge them, um, our sister Ivy and our brother Preston. If you guys can just come on up, give them a hand real quick. These two have uh, meant a lot uh, to us as a church and uh, to me as I've just been able to walk uh, with them. And I just want you guys um, to just praise God together with us, if, if you don't know already, but um, it's a, they're married. And, uh, and we're, um, it's a little over a month, right? Am I right? A month and uh, maybe a couple of weeks? Six weeks. Six weeks now. And so we just praise God for them. I just wanted to join together if we could just affirm them and just receive them and pray for them. And uh, they got a whole life's journey ahead of them. Amen? And so let's just pray and believe God together for what he wants to do with, this, uh, with these two now coming together. Father, we thank you. Uh, the Bible says that he who finds a wife finds what is good and obtains favor from the Lord. You said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will provide him a helper suitable for him. Thank you, Lord God, that they've left father and mother and held fast to each other. And now, before our very eyes, they have become one flesh. God, we thank you for our brother and for our sister. And now, Lord God, as we lift them up and bring them before you and your, great, your throne of grace, I ask that you give them what they need to be able to start their life off well. Lord, would you bless them? Would you strengthen them? Would you shower them with your presence? Would your provision go before them? Would they be lacking in no thing? Thank you, Lord God. The Bible says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you that they have sought you. I thank you that they have looked to you. I thank you that they belong to you. I thank you that your spirit is within them. I thank you, Lord God, that you're going to go before them and make their way straight. Lord God, protect them. Lord God, guard this marriage. Father, I pray that you lay a proper foundation. Lord God, I ask that you use them in ways that we could never imagine. May you, Lord God, have the chance of using these two for your kingdom in ways that perhaps they never could have been able to be used on their own. Thank you that they found one another. Thank you they have you at their center. Lord God, I ask, give Preston what he needs to be able to be there for Ivy. Give Ivy what she needs to be able to be there for Preston. And Lord God, I pray thanking you that this, these two are such a blessing and a, and a great addition to this community and to this church family. And I thank you for their presence. I thank you for their lives. And I thank you for their witness. And I ask, Lord God, raise them up, mature them so that they might be faithful servants of yours for your glory and for your kingdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, brother. Hallelujah. Our text um, for today, if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to Philippians. Philippians, if uh, you weren't already here, uh, last week we are starting uh, a new series, and we're going to have a chance to visit, revisit Philippians again with a different group here, where there are a lot of things here in the book of Philippians that are going to really be helpful for us as we're seeking to go forward as a church. And so please continue, as I've said last week, to be in prayer and continue to please be reading the book of Philippians in your own time throughout the week. It's only four chapters, and so it's not, it's not too much of a reading for your devotional time. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Let's stop right there. That's our message. Last week, we had the chance to look at the backstory uh, to this book of Philippians. We didn't even have a chance to start in the book of Philippians, and we went to Acts 16 to be able to see the background to this particular unique church. And what makes this church special? What makes any church pathway special? And what we saw in, in the book of Acts was unique in that we see Paul's first missionary journey to Europe. It's his second missionary journey, but it's for his first chance to be able to actually set foot in Europe and plant a church. And there 
he encounters this church, but not the way it is now, but the way it was to begin with. And he encounters three individuals who represent what this church eventually is going to be. The first person that we discover is Lydia. And the second person that Paul encounters with the gospel is this slave girl. And then the third person that we see Paul encountering in Acts 16 is this prisoner, um, excuse me, this Philippian jailer who works in this prison. Three totally different kinds of people who have nothing to do with each other. In the case of one woman, Lydia, she's well-to-do. She's a woman of means. She's got it going. She's got her own spot. She's independent. We don't know if she's married. We don't know if she has children, but she's a businesswoman. The Bible tells us that she's a seller of purple, which means in that day, she was making lots of money. And yet she wasn't a Christian, but she was a God-fearer, which means she was an intellectual. She's a woman who's cultured. She's a woman who's been around. She's read a lot. She's been up on a lot. And yet she's someone who fears God, but is not yet a Christian. It's kind of like many people you and I know, where they're not turned off by Christianity. If you were to enter into a conversation with them about the faith, they'd be open to having some coffee and some talk about God, but they're not quite ready to come to Christ. Or maybe they think they're Christian because they're religious, they're a God-fearer. And so you need somebody like Paul to set them straight and to be like, okay, I appreciate the fact that you have a heart for God. I appreciate the fact that you have a heart for the place of religion in your life, but that's not enough because Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a relationship. And until and unless we enter into a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we haven't gone far enough. And so Paul wanted to make sure that he encountered her with the gospel. Maybe you got a Lydia in your life. The second person we run into is this slave girl where the first thing she doesn't need is a sermon from you. She doesn't need you to Bible bash her. She's already feeling it. She's already been oppressed. She's already been through an awful lot. Society has ostracized her. Society has relegated her to nothing. She's a woman of ill repute in the culture of her day. Nobody wants to be around her. In fact, even the men that are in her life are making a killing off of her and her divinations and her sorcery. It was that very thing that put Paul into prison because when he brought the gospel to her and liberated her from her oppression, it killed their business. Maybe you got someone like that in your life. They may be demonically possessed. They may be demonically oppressed. They may be struggling with one kind of a mental illness or another. Or maybe they got quite a background of sexual abuse, physical abuse, where one thing after another has just compounded in their life, bringing them to where they're at. Maybe they're recently out of prison and they're trying to find a way to reacclimate themselves into society and they're realizing they never thought it was going to be this difficult and they're just experiencing oppression. The system is not working in their favor, it's working against them. You know somebody like that? Maybe God's calling you like Paul did to this slave girl, to that person's life. The church needs to be made up of people like that. Or perhaps you know somebody like this Philippian jailer who is your typical blue-collar worker. He, he could be a police officer, a fireman. He could, he could be somebody who is a correctional officer. He could be somebody who's just working a job, a factory worker, a, a foreman, a lead guy, a, a contractor, a construction, you name it. Somebody who's your average Joe doesn't need to go into all of the intellectual discussions like, say, Lydia Somebody who may not be like the slave girl, but needs the gospel nonetheless. You see, the church is made up of all kinds of people, no matter their socioeconomic bracket. You see, the Philippian church started out with people of different ethnicities and different social backgrounds and different class backgrounds. Why? Because the gospel is for all kinds of people. And because Paul had a heart to be all things to all kinds of people... It got him to encounter these kinds of people. I wonder how many Lydia's were passing by because we got our idea of who God would send us to. I, many, I wonder how many slave girls were passing by. I wonder how many Philippian jailers were just walking right by, not sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, realizing that God wants them too. But we got to have the heart of Christ. You see, if Christ had the heart of his disciples, he would have walked around Samaria 
and never encountered the Samaritan woman. But it was because he was in tune with the father and wanted to do what the father told him to do and go where the father wanted him to go that he was prepared to break cultural conventions in order to be able to bring the gospel to somebody who otherwise would have never been able to hear the gospel because they're seen by society as someone of ill repute. I've been to a lot of church growth seminars and a lot of different places where people want to throw up data and statistics and surveys and how to pull it off and how to succeed and how to do it. And all that is fine and good. It's always something good to, to get out of that, something valuable. But sometimes God's ways are just not our ways. I'm sorry. Sometimes God's thoughts are not our thoughts. When you look at Jesus' band of brothers, if you will, when you look at what the early church and who the early church was made up of, it just defies our logic and our rationale. When you look at who eventually became of this Philippian church, it's not what we imagined. We want the strong and the, and the young, and we want the hip and the cool, or, or we want the, the old, we want to get rid of the hip and the cool. We would just want to be these kinds of people. And notice, the church should make up people who come in with suits and people who come in with jeans cut at the knees. We, the church should make up people who are colored and the people who are white and everything in between. The church should make up and comprise people who are men and women, young and old. The church should comprise people who came to Christ at five years old, where to them it almost seems like they came to Christ at birth. And it should make up people who recently came to Christ, where they've been through some stuff before they ever got into here. It shouldn't just be this one monolithic group of people who... Outside of Jesus, you could already see them relating with each other. And that's my concern a lot of times. When we move among community to community, I'm just looking like, you know what? I, don't th I really don't think you need Jesus for what's happening here. I think you guys would still be into each other if Christ weren't in the picture. There's just so much you already got in common that even if the gospel wasn't the basis of this community, you'd still be around each other when rather... What the world should see, by this shall men know that you're my disciples. This should be a group of people who are gathered together as God's people on mission, where when they look, they're like, dude, what, what, what you doing with, I saw you the other day at Starbucks with, is that who you, is that who, is that just somebody, a coworker or, no, no, that's, my, that's family, that's my brother, that's my sister, <laughs> those are my people. It's like, what, what are you doing, do they play hoop? Do they listen to the same music? If you pull out their playlist, would, would they subscribe and download to the same podcasts and music? Do they, do they spend their time the same exact way? Because that's how the world operates. But what Jesus and the gospel does is he breaks down that middle wall of partition and he unites Jew and Gentile. He unites people who otherwise would have never had anything to do with each other. Now, a part of each other's life. What explains them? Jesus. What explains what's going on? The gospel. The gospel. We don't build the church on ethnicity. We don't build the church on if you make 80K and above. We don't build the church on poverty. We don't build the church on any of the. We build the church on the gospel. It's the blood of Christ that has made us one. One. And when that happens is it's going to be a church that comprises all kinds of people. We're not socially tweaking this thing and engineering it. It's like, ah, we got a quota, you know, like affirmative action. Like, we already got 8% of Ethiopians. We need some Eritreans. All right, that's 5%. All right, we already got 7% African American. We need some Anglo here. No, no, no. We want the gospel to be freely given to all. We want to be a people that are freely available to all. I have become all things to all people. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the one without the law, I became as one without the law. So that they might share in the gospel with me. You see? You see? But you can't operate out of your previous identity. You got to operate and function out of your new identity, Christ, the gospel. And that's what we see gloriously on display here with this church. And that's what I believe God wants to do in our midst. God wants to do that. God does that. God is the one who brings people from all different places and backgrounds and types. Amen? Paul says here in the beginning 
of this epistle, he identifies himself. Every epistle, you'll know, has a salutation, a greeting. I know sometimes we gloss over that, don't we? We want to get to the good stuff, like the meaty stuff, where he starts telling us to do things, right? We're very practical. Give me something to do, Paul. But keep this in mind. God doesn't include anything in his word for no accident. Amen? Jesus said, not a jot or tittle. Heaven and earth could pass away before my word passes away. So he may be setting this thing up, but this is important. Notice how he addresses himself as the apostle. How are you? Right? He doesn't say, Paul, the apostle. He doesn't say, Timothy, the, the pastor. He could. I wouldn't fault him for it. In fact, he does in other epistles for other purposes. But here, interestingly, what does he do? He refers to himself as servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. That's important. That's important because in order for us to understand our spiritual growth and our discipleship, just how do I, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to grow in my faith? This is part of that. And so in order to appreciate this church, this isn't just something that Paul wants to be regarded at. Paul wants them to see themselves in this way. It's not enough for Paul and Timothy to regard themselves as servants of Christ. We all need to regard ourselves as servants of Christ. But what's interesting is, as our English versions put it, notice here, the text says servants of Christ. But in the actual Greek, that word servant is doulos. And there's a reason why I bring that up. I only bring up um, Greek words for a purpose. That word is doulos. Most English versions that you have, that are in your Bibles, will probably use the word servant. And the reason why they don't translate it in its more forceful, more close-to-home sense is because of the negative connotation associated with the word doulos. The word doulos means slave. Yeah, slave. It means slave. That's how it's actually supposed to be regarded. Servant kind of is a euphemism. It, it dumbs it down a little bit so that it could be more culturally acceptable. And so because of modern day sensitivities, they wanted to make sure that they opted for servant over against slave, even though slave would be a more close to home rendering of the word doulos. Why do we say this? Because now insert it, Paul, Timothy, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in your New Testament, the word Christian is mentioned. That's it. Over 120 times, the word doulos is mentioned in relationship to the Christian. In the Old Testament, 140 times. Which is to say, when we look at the Christian's identity in the New Testament, all of the different times and occasions where God wants us to see ourselves in relationship to him, every time he describes us, it's more often described as a slave of God or a slave of Jesus Christ than the word Christian. What's a slave? A slave was somebody who had no rights. Right? There were two kinds of slaves in the Old Testament. Now, the slaves that we see in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, as we'll see in a moment, are different from what we discovered and encountered in our nation's recent history with the transatlantic uh, slave trade in terms of chattel slaves. And so there's, there's a difference there. But there are two kinds of slaves. In the one case, there were indentured slaves. These were the kinds of slaves that voluntarily entered into a relationship with the master. And so they came into it with eyes wide open. And they gladly and willingly entered into that indentured servitude. And there was a certain point in time in which when their term was up, they were given the opportunity, they were afforded the right to be able to be free men or free women. And when that time came, they would have to make a decision. And there would be some sort of a, like in marriage or so forth, there's a certificate, there's a way of formalizing this so that you would carry that with you. Wherever you go, you can stay. If you belong to someone, who your master is. And you can identify, especially if your master's not around you. And this was the way they operated. Or if you happen to be free, you need to be able to have that document. And so that time came, you could be free and you go. But there were many who chose to remain as slaves to their master. 
and they would go on and die in that home in relationship with their master. So they voluntarily entered into this relationship because of how good that relationship was with their master. And what they would do is they would take the ear and they would take it to the bore of a wood. And we get tattoos. Come on, don't look at me that way, right? Or we'll get little marks, those of us who've been in frat, um, fraternities. And so they would take their ear and they would take it to a bore and they would mark them. And there would be a way in which you demonstrate your loyalty through the marks to who it is that you belong to. And it was all voluntarily. It wasn't forced. You weren't coerced. It was a way to say, my loyalty, my allegiance is to you. That's my point. I say all of that to bring this to this point. What is it exactly about being a slave that captures the identity of the Christian? What is it about being a slave that captures the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? A slave has yielded their rights. A slave is someone who no longer is their own person. A slave is someone who has surrendered their allegiance to another. A slave is someone who has come under the rule and the reign and the mastery of another person. A slave doesn't operate as they wish. They don't get up and do as they please. Much of what they do and much of who they are is contingent upon who their master is and what their master's expectations and desires are out of them. And Paul sees that and he says, that's exactly what a Christian is. A Christian is not just someone who raises their hand. A Christian is not somebody who just simply professes faith in Jesus. A Christian is not somebody who just simply taps, it tips their hat off to Christ or, or nods to a prayer or, or has the back of a Bible signed or goes forward with baptism. A Christian is somebody who has surrendered their rights to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, if there's a slave, there's a lord. If there's a slave, there's a master. And so Paul realized there's something about the word slave that doesn't allow someone to wiggle out of the meaning and the identity of a Christian. Whereas all of the other ways to describe a follower of Jesus, it's easy to still describe yourself that way and still be nothing like that. And so you're basically just a nominal Christian. But in this time and in this context, nobody was in any sort of doubt about what a slave was. And so to have the goal to want to identify yourself as a slave was, are you serious? Paul said in Galatians 6.17, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is, I've been through some stuff. And I got, I got, my, I got my, my, my very body itself to show it. Professing my faith in Christ, uniting myself to him, giving my allegiance to Jesus has cost me this. Has cost me this. And he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I'm, what do we do when we wear tats? We, we, we're proud of whatever it is that symbol is or the language is, right? We hope it's, it's something that captures what we value. We want people to know. We're willing to go so far as to get a tattoo to be able to capture something that means to us. So if they could just look, they'll be able to get that much. And so Paul is saying, look, I don't hide this. In other words, Paul set out to follow Jesus, and it got to that point in his life where it was going to begin to cost him a scourging. But he's saying, I didn't say, all right, I was willing to follow you, Jesus, up to this point, but now... <laughs> I'm cool. At this point, I'm going to go back. No, he said, even when I got to the point where it began to cost me marks even on my own body, I'm going to continue to identify with Jesus. I bear in my body, which means if you got marks, those marks are voluntary. All you had to do was deny Jesus. All you had to do was renounce your identification and association with him. That's all. You would have never got him. All you had to do as a slave, when your time came to be able to be free, was to just go. And yet, when he had every opportunity 
to pull back and never have to encounter that, he went forward anyways with his association. You see? What he's saying is a Christian needs to be prepared to follow Jesus no matter what. And the word servant and slave captures all of that in ways that other words that identify the Christian don't quite. And so why is this important for us? Because Jesus believes that it should characterize the life of every single disciple of Jesus. Let me show you something. Mark chapter 10. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. There, at this point, Jesus himself is speaking. We're halfway through Mark's gospel at this point. Jesus has modeled what it means to be the servant king from Mark 1 all the way to Mark 8. And from Mark 8 all the way to 16, now we're going to see him mentioning again and again about his soon coming death. But then there's this one point in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42, where Jesus is approached by a mother along with her two sons named James and John. They got a question for him. Like, Jesus, um, we hope you're not offended by this, but um, when my sons die and they get a chance to be in your kingdom, can you promise me something? Can my boys be each on one side and the other? And he says, look, uh, your question, uh, it's not for me to be able to give or to decide. It's up to my father. Then he pulls these two along with the other ten aside, and he says in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, my disciples, Christians. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be, help me, it's there, yeah. Slave, see right here, they couldn't even translate it any other way. They'd be in trouble must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A couple of things. Jesus here is pointing out the upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's nothing like the way in which our world and our culture operates. You want to make it here? You got to throw your weight around. You want to make it here? You got to jockey for position. You got to vie for status. It's the powerful. It's the hungry. It's the ones who are willing to step on however many people they got to and however many people's expense it comes at to be able to get where they want to get. And Jesus looked at that. He says, that's how the Gentiles operate. When they get a little bit of authority on their hands, ooh, be careful because they're going to lord it over you. In other words, they see themselves occupying that position For the sole purpose of you serving them, not them serving you. Sometimes we'll see our politicians go on campaigns, right? Recognizing what their role is. But for some reason, just as soon as they get into the office, they forget. It's we the people. The child of God is supposed to be somebody who realizes that it's an upside down kingdom. People often ask me, I get this question a lot. Is it sinful to be ambitious? Is ambition inherently wrong? Is it wrong to pursue or to seek greatness? Is that wrong? No, not necessarily, Jesus says. It's just, it depends on how you go about it, is what he's saying. That's really what these men, these young men, who needed to have their mom with them, <laughs> to, looking for. And Jesus says there's nothing wrong with pursuing greatness, so long as you pursue it according to God's means. Jesus says, look, just be sure, if you're going to be the one who pursues greatness, that you pursue it by realizing that you're going to be servant of all, slave of all. He says, the one who wants to be great, he says, among you must be your servant. You want more responsibility? You want more titles? You want more status? Just realize you got more people to serve. Now you want it? (laughs) See, a lot of times people think things get easier and easier 
with the greater status that you're in. It, that shouldn't be in God's kingdom. You become more and more of a servant. The only thing that should qualify promotion in God's kingdom is that you were faithful with the little, and now he's capable of giving you and entrusting you with more. But if you're not even coming under and serving the ones who are presently with you, what makes you think you're going to know what you need to do when you occupy more greatness? This is important because as we move forward as a church, we're slaves of Christ. We're servants of Christ Jesus. Jesus himself had to model this. He says here, what? He says, this is not only something that I'm requiring out of you, Christian. I'm trying to tell you, verse 45, this is how I operated while I was here on this earth. You see, Jesus doesn't just expect stuff from us. He makes sure that he goes forward and models it before us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to slave, and to give himself as a ransom for many. In John chapter 13, what did he do? He took a basin, filled it up, he tied a cloth around his loins, he got on his knees, and he washed each and every one of his disciples' feet in order to show them what is going to be characterizing servant leadership. He says, in my kingdom, in my book, leaders are the ones who serve the feet of their people. They're not ones who see their people existing for their own self-aggrandizement. The church is in a platform for you to get on and go on to bigger and better things. It's not a place to boost your persona. It's not a place to, to up your book sales. It's not a place for you to be able to make whatever you want to make out of yourself. No, 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 no. The people exist to be served, not to serve you. And what he's saying is, this should be reciprocal. It should be mutual. It should be what characterizes the life of the church. This is what should be the, the, the yeast that spreads throughout each and every single one of us. We all should see ourselves as disciples, but nonetheless as servants of Christ, prepared to serve one another no matter what that means. What that means is, I've got to put, in order to serve you well, I've got to put your interests ahead of my own. We're going to see that in Philippians in a minute. I've got to put your well-being ahead of my own. I've got to put your best interest ahead of my own. The object of my service should be how I could enhance your faith and your joy in your God. That's service. Here Jesus shows us how he served us. He served us with his life. How did Jesus serve us? The Bible says he ransomed us. A slave is on the blocks, and there's a price and a bid. And depending on what the price is, you get him or you don't. Jesus came, and he saw us as slaves on the blocks, but not to any old man, but to sin and to Satan and to death. And he came, he lived, he suffered. He went to the cross and took upon himself your sins in his body and he served you well on that cross by bearing the full weight of the wrath of God and taking upon himself a punishment that not his sins deserved but your sins deserved. And in doing so, he enabled you to be able to die to sin, being a slave to sin, and to live to righteousness. He served you. He served you which is to say you're never more free than when you're a slave to Christ. A lot of people look at that word and they jerk. And they're like, ah, I want to be free. What is this slave business? If you're not in Christ, you're already a slave. There's no neutral place. It's not like if I'm not a slave to Christ, I'm not a slave to anything. Come on, somebody. We've lived a little while. And those of us who know what life was like before we were Christians know, man, I thought that was freedom, but it really wasn't. We all look back, and especially those of us who didn't become a Christian at five or six or seven and had a chance to, to live a little and be at a few places and spend our lives in a few ways, we realize, man, that is not freedom. And we look at people till this day still there. That is not freedom. That is bondage. That's true slavery. We were slaves to our flesh and its desires and its passions. We were a slave to sin. We were a slave to people's opinions. We were a slave 
to this world. And But God, but God, God showed up in our lives and said, I know you think you're free, but you're not. And what did he do? He died in our place. He ransomed us. He bought us back. For what purpose? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth here. He's writing to this church that he loves and he cares deeply about because this church is in a mess at this point. These Christians came to Christ, but they had the audacity to go back to their old ways. Those who were caught up in homosexuality went back to homosexuality. Those who were caught up in sexual immorality of any kind went back to that. Those who were caught up in gossip and slandering and idolatry and drunkenness, you name it, began to begin reverting back to old ways and old sinful habits. And Paul's getting wind of this. And he's like, what? Are you kidding me? Am I hearing right? Is this true what I'm reading in this letter that's gotten to me? And he says in verse 19, don't you know, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? Notice what he says. A true slave realizes what? That they're not what? Their own. You're not your own. You're not operating out of your slave identity in relationship to Christ. You're still operating as a slave, but a slave to your old sinful habits. And he's saying, the way that you liberate yourself from a lifestyle that leads to destruction is not by being a slave at all, but it's by being a slave to the right master. You don't just say no to the bottle or to the mushrooms or to the pill, or to the drugs, or to the women, or the men, or the club life, or you name it. You don't just say no to the things that have a pull on your life. That's not enough. You got to say yes to the right thing. The way that you say no in the Christian life is by saying yes to the right one. The way that you liberate yourself from being a slave to something that will do no good for you is by being a slave to the one who has done nothing but good for you. And that person is Jesus Christ. He says here, know you not that you are not your own? No? Verse 20, yes. How so? Because you've been bought. There it goes again. Remember, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. You've been bought. Who's been bought? You, child of God. You've been purchased. Jesus walked on the line. He saw you. He sees nothing but slaves. He looks at you debilitated. He looks at you just wasted, broken, abused, traumatized, ruined, messed up. He looks at what life and the world and sin and the flesh has done to you. And there you are, standing on the blocks. Nobody wanted you. Nobody still wants you. And Jesus comes, not because I'm lovable, not because he found anything in me, but because God himself is love. He looks at you and he says, I want him. I want her. I will do whatever it takes. I will spend my life. I will pay whatever the price is. And what was that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. He bought you. He bought you. He bought you with a price. And that price was his own life. That price was his own life. The Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, than that he's willing to lay his life down for his friends. Jesus laid his life down in order to buy you back so that you might belong to him. So that now that he's bought me, I'm no longer my own. Why? Because the one who says, 500, 1,000. To the man with the coat, yes, it belongs to Jesus now. My life now no longer belongs to me, nor does it belong to the devil, nor does it belong to my flesh. My life now belongs to Jesus Christ, the one who purchased me with an infinite price, with his own blood. The eternal God, the God-man, 
the Son of God came down in flesh, lived a perfect life, suffered and died once and for all in my place in order to prove to me his love for me. And he rose again in order to show me how powerful he is to save me. He bought you. He bought you. So then what's supposed to happen? Glorify God. Where? In your body. You're supposed to glorify God in your body. In other words, you're supposed to take this life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, no matter what the day is, and my one aim in my life, no matter what I am, I could be a stay-at-home mom, I could be a business professional, I could be a student, I could be a mother, I could be a father, a, a child to parents. I could be a church member. It doesn't matter where you are. My one aim in my life is how can I glorify my God with this body in all that I do, in all that I do. That doesn't have to wait for a Sunday 11 a.m. hour. That's all of my life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, Paul said, Romans 12, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world as an old slave, but rather be transformed through the renewing of your mind. That's what it means to be a child. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, so, whether, so whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all for who? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. For the glory of God. A slave lives for the glory of God. That's what it means to be a servant. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We're coming we're coming closer and closer to a close here. Ephesians 6, verse 5. But what about what characterizes the life of this servant or this slave of Christ Jesus? Paul weighs in in Ephesians 6, verse 5. He says, slaves, there you go, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing this all the while, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. See? Whether he's a slave or free, whether he ends up getting free or not. Whether you end up getting free or not on the earth, he's saying, you always are a slave to Christ. So a few things he points out here. He talks about what the heart of this Christian ought to be, a sincere heart. So when we serve in our marriages, when we're serving one another, new parents and we're serving our children, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we're seeking to want to, to serve. Service is not about what we do on stage or behind pulpits per se. Service is what we do when people's eyes are on us and when their eyes especially are not on us. Paul says here something interesting that you would think would be relevant today, but not so much in his day. He says, not as people pleasers. Not in the way of eye service, he says. Don't be doing it just simply because folk are looking at you. You know, in our day and age, we're called the narcissistic generation. This is the selfie generation. We can't just enjoy a beautiful waterfall. We got to take a selfie with us in front of it, right? We can't just enjoy an awesome concert downtown. We got to make sure everybody knows that we're here. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's the point that we got to fight on our hands, that it's, it's, it's a very fine line, isn't it, to know whether I am where I am and I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm with who I'm, I'm with because... I'm in the moment and I'm enjoying it and that's fine or, or whether I'm getting the enjoyment and the pleasure from who I know, especially based on their likes and their comments, knows that I'm here. And Paul says, it's always been the case. Before the iPhone and post iPhone, that's always been the case and especially in the church. This is important because as you all begin to get increasingly involved in serving in the church, you need to keep in mind, don't just be looking for those serving opportunities that get eye attention. How about those opportunities where the church is just as much in need 
that may not get as much eye, eye attention? What if you're called upon to sort chairs and to get the space in the room set up before anybody shows up? What if you're called upon to help out with what we need to do with this room after everyone leaves? What if it happens to be something that goes on between Sundays? What if it has to do with visiting people who are shut-ins or who happen to be sick and need a, a warm meal that we can't, we can't post and say, I'm here, I'm giving the meal, watch me. What if it has to do with kinds of service where the only people that know are the ones to whom it's being done and the one who sees it done? Is that enough? Is that enough? You see, the gospel liberates us. Before we were Christians, we got our affirmation and we got our motivation from who was applauding us and says, I see you. I see you there. I see what you're doing. And we get something out of that. So we can't really tell whether we're really doing what we're doing for the sake of the rightness of it and the goodness of it or whether we're doing it because of who we know realize is at the moment what we're doing. And Paul says, what liberates us as Christians is, even though that may have been the case at one point in time, as Christians, we don't need to be preoccupied with that anymore. We used to be slaves to that way of thinking. But when Jesus came and ransomed us and bought us back to himself and we're no longer our own, he liberated us from that way of living and that way of thinking. I don't need anybody to see me doing anything. The fact that God wants me to do it is enough. The fact that God sees me is enough. That's what we need filling our churches. That's what we need in our communities. That's what we need in our world. Men and women who are prepared to serve God, not as people pleasers for eye service, but with a sincere heart for the Lord. Amen? Paul wants to accomplish this. And Paul is saying, that's who Paul and Timothy are. That's who Philippi is. That's what pathway ought to be. Where are you today? Maybe you're somebody who coming in, you never thought to see, it's like, wow, I don't know if I've ever thought to see myself as a slave of Christ Jesus. But after today, you realize if Jesus didn't shy away from that title as God, and he had every right to. Who am I to think that I could shy away from that title? Have this mind of a slave. Have this mind in you. Philippians 2, 5. I'm quoting scripture. Have this mind in you, which was also where? In Christ Jesus. Who, even though he was in the form of God, he was God. He did not count equality a thing to be grasped. But rather, he took upon himself the form of what? Help me, somebody. Servant. The word there is doulos. Slave. He took upon himself the form of a slave. Jesus realized if that's what it was going to take to buy you, if that's what it's going to take to rescue you, to have you with him in his heaven for all eternity, he was prepared. The one who was rich became poor, the Bible says, so that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. God's here today, friend. And if he was humble enough to reduce himself out of a love for you, how much more should we be prepared to humble ourselves, to reduce ourselves out of love and service toward one another? That's what the church should be about. Instead of being about, well, how come I got to do this? You never ask him. Why she get picked? How come I don't get? I tell you, a lot of marriages could have easily been resolved that were on their way to the divorce courts. If we stopped making the meeting, and I've been in a lot of them, about, well, this is what I say, and well, this is what I say. Well, she's not hearing my point. Well, he's not getting what I'm saying, and, and everybody's trying to hold their ground and their turf. Rather, what is God saying? What is Jesus saying? What is Paul saying? Rather, we should be a church that seeks to outserve one another. That's what we should be at. It's like, oh, man, you got me. You really outserved me. Next week, I'm going to get you. You really put my best interest at heart this time. I'm going to get you next time. I'm going to put your well-being ahead of my own. We should be seeking to outdo each other in how we serve each other rather than fighting for status and clout and position. 
That's the heart. That's the character of Christ. That's the heart of the Christian is to want to come low. How low can you go? That's how low we need to be prepared to go. That's not a, that's not a defeater. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's a virtue in the kingdom. That's a value in the kingdom because it's an upside down kingdom. That's why. And so let's stand together. I want to pray together with you and I want to pray for you and I want to pray for us that God would produce this and reproduce this in our church. That we would be people who don't shy away from regarding ourselves as slaves of Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of ours. We don't want to just read about Paul and Timothy identifying themselves as slaves of Christ. We stand here in this space today and we regard ourselves as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our king. He's our great God, worthy of all of our loyalty. If there's anybody who deserves our lives and our allegiance, it's him. He's, he's given all out of love for us. How on earth would we not want to give all in return? And so, Lord God, we voluntarily, gladly, willingly surrender ourselves into your hands, Lord Jesus. God, we renounce this idea that we are our own person. We repent of that. We lay that at the foot of the cross. And we recognize that you've bought us with your blood. You have rescued us from everything that was on its way to destroying our lives. We're now slaves of yours. Help us to glorify you, I pray. Help us to take this identity of a slave of Christ into all of our relationships, in all of our spaces that we occupy. Lord, maybe there's conflict. Maybe there's tension in our relationships. Maybe there are things that are yet to be resolved. I pray, Lord God, that this would be the answer for somebody. Let's stop making it about us and start making it about other people. I thank you for this time. We thank you for one another and what you've done and are prepared to continue to do with this group. We bless you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name. And now I pray, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of his Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you all. Amen. Amen. God bless you.